Please turn in them to the little book of Philemon. We began our study of Philemon last week, looking at the first seven verses, the foundation of Paul's appeal to Philemon. Paul uh, is writing this letter to his friend and fellow gospel worker, Philemon. Philemon lives in Colossae. The church of Colossae meets in his house, and Philemon is a slave owner. And one of his slaves is Onesimus, and Onesimus runs away. He somehow, in God's providence, finds his way to the Apostle Paul. He hears and responds to the gospel. He becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And now Paul is writing this letter to his friend Philemon as a message of reconciliation, an attempt to negotiate and mediate a reconciliation between Onesimus, the slave, and Philemon, his master. Now, we dealt with the problem of slavery last week, the institution of slavery in this letter. As a recap, if it seems that Paul is too soft on the institution of slavery in this letter, let us be reminded of the five things that we talked about last week that we have to keep in mind. First of all, this letter is not for the purpose of dealing with slavery. All right, so we would not expect to see uh, an extended excursus as to why the institution of slavery is wrong and evil. Secondly, slavery in the first century is a historical fact. It is much different, much different than slavery as we know it in a colonial America in the 18th and 19th century. Thirdly, in his other writings, in Paul's other writings elsewhere in the New Testament, he provides some very clear and countercultural messages to that institution uh, that would have been transformational in that culture as to the treatment of slaves. That they ought to be treated with dignity and respect as people made in the image of God. Fourthly, and I'm going to argue in this passage this morning, Paul is appealing to Philemon for the emancipation of Onesimus. He wants Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a bondservant, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And then lastly, the doctrinal underpinnings of this letter that we saw last week and we'll see this week and Lord willing next week as well. The doctrinal teachings and underpinnings of this letter are incompatible with the institution of slavery. Slavery is incompatible with the gospel. Racism is incompatible with the teachings of the gospel and those doctrinal underpinnings we see in this letter as well. But again, the point of this letter is not about slavery. The point of this letter is reconciliation between two brothers in Christ, Onesimus and Philemon. We saw the foundation for that last week in verses 1 through 7. And this week in this passage, verses 8 through 16, we're going to see Paul's actual appeal to Philemon to uh, reconcile with Onesimus. So let's read verses 8 through 16 of Paul's letter to Philemon. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. 
I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's go to the Word and thank him for this book and ask him to speak to us from it. Father, what a privilege it has been already this morning to worship you to both sing the word, read the word, and pray the word. And now, Father, as we turn to your word and seek to be taught through the preaching of your word, Father, we ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is that through your spirit you might take what is in this passage and drive it deep into our hearts to change us, not just our outward behavior, but our inner soul, our desires, our affections, our beliefs even, so that, Father, we might be transformed to look more like Jesus, so that you would be glorified through your church. This is a high thing that we ask, Lord, but we ask it in faith, knowing that you bring fruit when your word is proclaimed in faith and received in faith. And so we pray this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So in these uh, eight or nine verses that we read this morning, I see three movements that will serve as an outline for us as we make our way through verses 8 through 16. First of all, in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, in essence, I'm making an appeal instead of commanding you. I'm not commanding you to do this. I'm making an appeal for you. We need to learn what what he means by that. Secondly, in the body of this portion, verses 10 through 13, or through verse 14, Paul gives us what the basis for his appeal is. So he's making an appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus back. What's the basis of his appeal? There are three things that are the basis of his appeal that we need to unpack. And then thirdly, as he closes out this section, he appeals to God's providence itself as the basis for his appeal to Philemon. So let's deal first with this, uh, that Paul begins this section with by saying to Philemon, I'm not commanding you, I'm just making an appeal to you. We find that in verses 8 and 9. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. So Paul suggests here that um, if he wanted to, he had the right to command Philemon to do what is required. So there's a couple of assumptions on Paul's part here. First of all, um, there's a sense in which he believes that it is required of Philemon to take Onesimus back. He he believes it's a requirement. Whether it's a, a practical requirement of the law to love your neighbor as yourself or whether it's a practical requirement and implication of the law to forgive your brother who sins against you, he sees this as a requirement for Philemon, as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, 
you got to do this. It's required. The second assumption here is that Paul seems to apply that perhaps because of his apostleship, he has the right to demand this. He has the right to command Philemon to do this, and Philemon must obey because he's an apostle. He has a right to command this, but he doesn't command this. In, in trying to get Philemon to do what is right, Paul doesn't lead first with law, nor does he lead first with authority. He could, because according to the law of loving your neighbor, because according to the law of, of forgiving your brother when he sins against you, he could command him to do this as a follower of Christ to reconcile with Onesimus, also because of his being a, an apostle, his positional authority. He could appeal to that and say, I've got the right to command this of you, Philemon, but he doesn't do that either. Paul's efforts to compel Philemon to do what is right were not by leading first with law or leading first with authority. Instead, he appeals to Philemon instead of commanding him. It's a couple of lessons quickly that I want us to learn from that. First of all, I think there's something here about us learning how to defer our rights in order to serve others. Paul had the right to demand this of him. As an apostle, he had certain rights and privileges, and one of them is that he had the right to command Philemon to do what is required here, to take Onesimus back. But instead of demanding his rights, what does he do? He sets aside his rights. He sets aside his privilege as an apostle in order for Philemon to learn a very important lesson, in order for Philemon to to do this with the right motivations, not just because Paul said so. Instead of demanding his rights, he sets them aside. What, what Paul is after here is not just the reconciliation between Onesimus and Philemon. That's the end result, but his aim is the means by which he gets there. He wants Philemon to grow from this. He wants Philemon to mature in his faith that he would be conformed more to the image of Christ as a result of this time. And, and those things would not have happened if Paul had just ordered him to do this. That this was just something that Philemon did because it was commanded by an apostle. So he wants, to, wants Philemon to grow from this. And since Philemon's sanctification is Paul's aim here, he sets aside his right as an apostle in order to craft this intervention in such a way that Philemon would grow from it. He would grow in grace and look more like Jesus afterwards. Paul's actions in this regard remind me of the example of Jesus Christ, who, though he was and is king, he set aside his rights and privileges as king to put on flesh and become one of us and die for us. Paul's humility is a picture of Jesus' humility. Paul himself writes about Jesus' Jesus's humility in Philippians 2. We're familiar with this. Paul says to the Philippians, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, the interest of an apostle, the interest of being able to demand others to obey you, 
but also to the interest of others. The interest of Philemon needing to grow, needing to be sanctified in this process. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is, a thing to be demanded, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus set aside his rights and privileges as king, which doesn't mean that he ceased to be king, but as king, he humbled himself by taking on the flesh of a man. And he humbled himself to become our servant and to die for us on a cross. So in a, in a purely practical sense, both Jesus and Paul, in this sense, are examples to us that we ought to set aside, sometimes we have to set aside our rights and our privileges in order to serve and love others around us, even those who have offended us. That's a practical application of this, but there's also a spiritual application. And the spiritual application is to be reminded that Jesus, the Son of God, condescended himself. He humbled himself, the God of the universe, by putting on flesh and becoming one of us to serve us and to die for us who had offended him with our sin. But Jesus who had the right to order our execution because of our offense against him, who had the right, as he said himself, to call on 12 legions of angels to rescue him from the cross and, and keep him from having to pay the price. He willingly and voluntarily set aside that right and privilege in order to go to the cross on our behalf and serve us by paying the ultimate price for our reconciliation. What a Christ we have, church. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a Savior. But the second lesson that we learn from this fact that Paul is appealing to Philemon instead of commanding him is that sometimes in our efforts to encourage reconciliation between brothers and sisters, we have to leave room for the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin, not ours. We can help by providing biblical truth to them, but we can't make them change their mind, much less their heart in the matter. That is the Holy Spirit's job. Parents learn this instinctively as they raise their children. When our children are young, their obedience is based solely on our authority as parents, as mom and dad. We typically do not explain the moral rationale for why a three-year-old should not hit their brother and sister, right? But as they grow and as their God-given consciences begin to develop, 
we began to explain to them the moral reason. We began to, to, we, we began to put biblical truth and, and, and moral reasoning onto the, the shelves of the warehouse of their conscience that the Holy Spirit then uses to convict them when they are doing what is wrong. The same is true when we're encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to reconcile with one another. No lesson is learned if we simply demand that they reconcile. But if we show them truth from God's word, then the Holy Spirit can use that to bring conviction to do that which is, as Paul says, is required. And that's what Paul is doing here. Instead of just demanding that Onesimus, that Philemon take Onesimus back, he appeals to him. And he appeals to him on the basis of three things. And these three things that we need to unpack in verses 9 through 14 are, are the fuel that compels Philemon to do that which is required. What's the basis for Paul making this appeal to Philemon? We'll see that he appeals to Philemon to take Onesimus back on the basis of three things. First, on, uh, for love's sake. Second, for usefulness' sake. And then thirdly, for goodness' sake. So first of all, reconciling for love's sake. We see that in verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. Paul says, I appeal to you on the basis of love. I'm appealing to you to take Onesimus back for love's sake. Now, whose love is he talking about and to whom is that love directed? I think there's four options for us here. First of all, Paul could be referring to his own love for Onesimus. We see in verse 10 and in verse 12 about Paul's growing affections for Onesimus. In verse 10, he calls him my child whose father I became in imprisonment. He's speaking there about the, the love of a spiritual father who's brought Onesimus to faith in Christ Jesus and has begun to see him discipled as a follower. He loves him. In verse 12, he says in sending Onesimus back, he's sending what? His very heart. He loves him. And so in saying that he is appealing for love's sake, Paul could here be saying, Philemon, I love this guy Onesimus. And so on the basis of my love for him, take him back. Receive him back as a brother. Secondly, Paul could be referring to his own love towards Philemon. Paul's whole letter here comes across as very compassionate and loving to Philemon. Remember Paul called Philemon in verse 1, my beloved fellow worker. He loves him. And so Paul could be saying here in appealing to love's sake, Philemon, brother, I love you. And as my beloved fellow worker in the gospel, I want you to do the right thing. So because I love you, I'm going to appeal to you to do the right thing. Thirdly, Paul could be referring here to Philemon's love for Onesimus. 
In verse 16, Paul says that it is his hope that Philemon would take Onesimus back, not just as a brother, but as a beloved brother. That's Paul's hope. And it seems a tall order on the surface, doesn't it? On the surface, it doesn't seem as though there's any love on Philemon's part for Onesimus. But Paul's appealing to the fact that Philemon knows that he is commanded to love his brother in Christ. He knows the heart of the Apostle John's teaching where John says in John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another so as I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. As we read from Romans 12, verse 10 earlier, Paul says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And so Paul knows that Philemon knows and believes the apostles' teaching with respect to loving one another. This is, this is a command. This is something that Philemon must do. He must love his brother in Christ. And so Paul is simply encouraging Philemon here to act on that which he already knows to be the right thing to do. To love his brother and to put that love into action now by receiving him back as a brother. But then fourthly, this could also be Paul referring to Philemon's love for the Apostle Paul himself. I think this is the reason why we have that parenthetical thought that Paul inserts here about him being an old man in chains. He says, between the beginning of verse 9 and verse 10, he says, I... Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Why does Paul insert that there? The word for old man shares the same root with the word for the office of elder in the church. And so this is literally, I, Paul, an elderly man. This could be, on one sense, a, a nod to his apostleship and his right to demand this of Philemon. But I think more likely... Paul is referring to here, here to his humble estate in life, at least at this point in his life. I might be an apostle, but I'm really, right now, I'm an old man in chains. So this could be Paul saying, Philemon, don't you love me? Would you do this for me as an old man in chains? I think all of these loves are Perhaps part of what Paul is appealing to when he encourages Philemon to reconcile for love's sake. Philemon, this is the loving thing to do, to reconcile with Onesimus. But I think there's another love here that Paul is also appealing to. And that is the love of Christ in the gospel. The love of God displayed at Calvary. Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of Christ for sinners like us is most perfectly displayed in the cross. And in order for sinners like us to be reconciled back to God, it required a display of love such that the world had never seen and has never seen since. And when we refuse to reconcile with our brother or sister, we are distorting the gospel. Just as we said last week, when we refuse to reconcile with our brother or sister, 
we are denying the very faith that serves to unite us. And we're distorting the reconciling power of the gospel that reconciles sinners like us to a holy God. But when we reconcile, when we do reconcile with our brother and sister in Christ, especially when they have offended us deeply, or when they extend grace to us, especially and particularly when we have offended them deeply, what an absolutely beautiful picture of the gospel that is. So we can either distort the gospel or reinforce the gospel by how we navigate hard reconciliations, difficult reconciliations with one another. Because, friend, there, there has never been a more difficult reconciliation than the one that was wrought for us through Christ on the cross. The second basis for this appeal, first of all, is for love's sake. Secondly, it is for usefulness' sake. So he talks here about recognize, re- reconciling for the, for the sake of usefulness. We see this in verses 11 through 13. Paul writes, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So in some sense, Paul says here that formerly Onesimus was useless to Philemon. We don't know why he was considered useless. Maybe he just wasn't a very hard worker for Philemon. Maybe he was lazy. We don't know. But Paul says now he is useful. And so he's sending him back to Philemon. And he says, I'm sending you my very heart. Why? Why would he do that? Because now he's no longer useless, now he is useful. So useful, in fact, that Paul would be fine for Onesimus to stay with him. He'd love for Onesimus to just set up shop there in Rome and, and, and be his friend and, and gospel worker there as he's in chains under house arrest. Because he was serving Paul, he was useful to Paul. So what's Paul trying to communicate here? What's his point and what's our takeaway from this? Well, in in talking about Onesimus' transformation from uselessness to usefulness, Paul is making a play on words that we can't recognize in our English translations. Um, Bible scholar N.T. Wright says that there is a double pun here. First of all, the name Onesimus means profitable or useful. Secondly, the word translated useful here in this verse is the Greek word akristos, which N.T. Wright notes would have been audibly indistinguishable from the word Christos, which is the name for Christ. And so this is not just a transformation of a slave into a free man. This is a transformation of a dead man into a man who is now alive in Christ. Onesimus has not simply gone through a vocational transformation. He's gone through a spiritual transformation. He's a new person. You see, on the surface, this appeal for usefulness sake 
seems overtly superficial and, and perhaps utilitarian. Okay, now, now Onesimus will, will be more useful to you. You'll be able to get more done, Philemon. But what Paul is really doing here is appealing on the basis of the transformation that has occurred in the soul of Onesimus. From a slave into a brother, because that's what Paul is going to appeal to Philemon to take him back as. Not as a bondservant, but as a brother. And this transformation from a slave to a brother makes Onesimus all the more useful, both to Philemon, but to Paul as well in his gospel ministry. Friend, this too is a a beautiful gospel picture for us. That those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ are no longer slaves, but sons, sons of God and fellow brothers and sisters with one another. As Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation for the, this is right after he, he like has a conniption fit in, at the end of chapter 7, right? Why do I keep doing the things I, don't, I know I shouldn't do? Why do, I, why do I keep not doing the things I know I should? He feels trapped. He feels enslaved. He, he feels like he's in prison to sin and the pull and the temptation. And then the victorious call of the first couple of verses of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And when we are free from the power and penalty of sin and death, friend, we become useful in the kingdom of God. And so Paul appeals to Philemon on the basis of Onesimus' transformation from a runaway slave, a useless runaway slave, to a useful son of God. Thirdly, he bases his appeal on the sake of goodness. He appeals to Philemon to take Onesimus back for goodness sake. For goodness sake. We find that in verse 14. Uh, Go back to verse 13. He says, "I, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Verse 14, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul was happy for Onesimus to stay with him because he was useful in his kingdom work, in his gospel ministry. But he knew that he couldn't do that. For one, it was against the law. It was unlawful for him to harbor a runaway slave. But furthermore, as we talked about earlier, what was really compelling Paul's work here was that he wanted Philemon to learn something from this. There was something fruitful he knew Philemon needed to take away from this for some reason in his life to grow in grace as a result of this. And so for the greater good, that is the greater good of Philemon learning this lesson, Paul preferred to do nothing without Philemon's consent in order that Philemon's goodness might not be by compulsion but of his own accord. That word goodness in verse 14 ought to remind us of the word good that we saw in verse 6 last week. Remember, we said last week that 
verse 6 really gave us the point not only of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for Philemon, but it gave us the point of the letter itself. Why is Paul writing to Philemon again? It is not just so that Onesimus and Philemon would reconcile. Yes, that is the end result that Paul is appealing will happen. That's what he wants to happen. But his aim is the means to get that result. That's his aim. And so verse 6 said, And I pray that the sharing of your faith, remember what that meant, the koinonia of your faith, the mutual belonging to one another that is now true because of our common faith in Christ, the, the partnership that we have together because of our, of our faith in, the, in, in Christ, our participation in one another because of the gospel, that the sharing of your faith may become effective, that is operative, for the full knowledge, that is the awareness and the application of what? Of every good thing that is in you for the sake of Christ. And we said last week that every good thing refers to Philemon's maturity in the faith. His growing in grace. And so verse 6 was Paul praying that Philemon was so grasped the reality of the koinonia that existed between him and other brothers and sisters in Christ and now specifically between him and Onesimus himself, that this would compel him to mature in the faith and to grow in the grace, grow in grace by taking Onesimus back. What we need to see now is that that word good there in every good thing in verse 6 is the same word for good now in verse 14 where Paul expresses his desire that Philemon's goodness might not be by compulsion, but of his own accord. And so this appeal for goodness sake is in hopes that God would use this circumstance in Philemon's life to grow him in the gospel, to mature him in the faith, that this would be one of those critical moments in Philemon's life that deepens his faith in Jesus. That's what his hope is in appealing to goodness sake. Paul's aim is Philemon's heart, not just his outward behavior. He's aiming for his soul. He's aiming for his heart here. Isn't that what we do in parenting? We're, we're, we're aiming for our children's heart, not just their outward behavior. And I'm thankful that this is what God is doing in each of us who know him as Lord. That in sanctifying us, he's not just shaping our outward behavior. That he is, as Paul says in Romans 12.1, he's renewing our mind. He's transforming us by the renewing of our mind. He's conforming us more inwardly than outwardly to the image of Christ. And this is what Paul wants for Philemon in this circumstance. So, so he appeals to him for goodness sake. That God might use this circumstance to conform Philemon to look more like his Savior as a result of this. So Paul is appealing to Philemon for, for love's sake, primarily for, uh, for Philemon to act out of the love of the gospel that's in him through Christ. He's appealing for usefulness' sake. 
to see the transformation that has occurred in Onesimus from useless to useful. And he's appealing for goodness sake, for the sake of Philemon's own sanctification. But then Paul concludes this portion of the letter with an appeal to God's providence. Paul seems to be suggesting that God has an intention in doing this. That perhaps God is at the reins when Paul, when Philemon experiences this abandonment and this very real loss in his life when Onesimus leaves. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So I do believe that we read from this that Paul is expecting Philemon to grant Onesimus emancipation. I do believe that that's what he is uh, shooting for here, but in the very least that he would no longer be treated as a runaway slave, but as a long lost and beloved brother. The statement there at the end of verse 16 that, that he should be seen as a brother both in the flesh and in the Lord means that Paul wants Philemon to see Onesimus as a true brother, a real brother. That now because he's a brother and in Christ, there ought to be a real life in the flesh change in how he's treated. He can't be a brother in Christ and a slave in the flesh. They're incompatible. His new life in Christ is Onesimus' new identity. And Paul is appealing to Philemon to, to treat him and relate to him out of his new identity. Not as a runaway slave, but as a brother in Christ. So I think this too is an argument for Paul's desire to see Onesimus emancipated. He wants Philemon to see him as a true brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. But verse 15 is Paul asserting God's providence. He's appealing to God's providence. That God's sovereign in this, Philemon. That he has a reason in what he has allowed to take place both in your life and in Onesimus' life. When Onesimus ran away from Philemon, he was not thinking, Onesimus was not thinking, hey, what I really need to do is get saved. What I really need to do is somehow find my way to the Apostle Paul, hear and respond to the gospel, get saved, and then go back to Philemon. We don't know exactly what was in Onesimus' mind, but I can pretty much assure you that wasn't it. Right? He wanted out. He wanted away from Philemon. If he was, as we suggested last week as a possibility, if he was an indentured servant seeking to pay off debt as a slave, he wanted out from under the burden of having to pay back that debt through slavery. He wanted out. And as we'll see in next week's passage, there's an indication that he may be even robbed from Philemon because Paul says, whatever he's taken from you, put that on my tab. And so perhaps he was even intending, his intention was to steal from Philemon. But whatever his intentions were, 
God's intentions were different. Just as Joseph said to his brothers when they came to Egypt to escape famine in Palestine, after having sold their brother into slavery and all of that, now they come to beg him for rescue from the famine. What does Joseph say to, him, say to them? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Just as God was at work in Joseph's life, even when he was left for dead in the well, even when he was sold into slavery, even when he was serving as a house servant in Potiphar's house, through all of that, God was working in Joseph's life. God had an intention, though man had an evil intention. Just as God was working in Joseph's life, so he was working in Onesimus' life to intersect his life with the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring him to faith, save him. Same is true for Philemon. God was at work in his life as well. When Philemon discovered that Onesimus had run away, I'm sure he was upset. I'm sure he was wondering, why, why is this happening to me? Why am I experiencing this loss? And Paul's saying here, listen, God was at work in all of this. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. God was doing a work in Philemon to grow his faith through this experience, to grow him in grace so that his faith, as, as Paul prayed in verse 6, would become operative to affect every good thing in his life for the glory of God. It wasn't fun. It certainly wasn't financially advantageous to him. But God had caused this to happen to him so that his faith would grow and so that he would gain a brother in the Lord. As we think about how to apply a message like this to our lives, we can think on both a practical level and a spiritual level. On a practical level, we learn that Sometimes we should set aside our own rights and privileges in order to serve and love others around us, just as Paul did in setting aside his right as an apostle. Just as Paul appeals to Philemon to do in setting aside his right of ownership, sometimes we have to set aside our rights and privileges, like Jesus did, to serve and love those around us. Secondly, we also learned that in encouraging others to reconcile, we need to sometimes leave room. We need to always leave room for the Holy Spirit. We are not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can use us, but we're not Him. Thirdly, we remember here that reconciling is a matter of love. Reconciling is a consequence of obeying the command to love one another. And when we don't reconcile, we deny the love of Christ in us and we deny the reconciling power of the gospel. And then fourthly, we, we're reminded here of the importance of always remembering that God is sovereign and trusting in his providence. And that while we're not, we're not always able to see why he does certain things and allows certain things, Paul suggests that one of the reasons here for this is 
so that Philemon would grow in his faith and gain a brother in the Lord. We're not always privy to the reasons why God does what he does and allows what he allows in our lives. But we can trust that he's still in control. And we can trust that he's still good. And we can trust that no matter what happens, he's working for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. So there's some very important practical applications that we can learn and pull from this. But there's also the spiritual application, and in particular, the beautiful pictures of the gospel that we see in this letter and in this passage. In verse 11, we learn what was formerly useless apart from Christ has now become useful because of the cross. That is true in our lives as well, friend of Jesus. In verse 16, we learn that what was formerly a bondservant apart from Christ has now become a brother and a son because of the cross. If we placed our faith in Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin and death. Praise God, we're sons. We've been freed. We've been rescued. And then thirdly, the entire theme of this letter is reconciliation. As Paul works as mediator to negotiate a reconciliation between a runaway slave, Onesimus, and Philemon, this reminds us of Jesus' work of reconciliation on our behalf. Jesus is the mediator for we who are slaves to sin and death. And our master against whom or from whom we had run away and against whom we had offended with our own sin and against whom we had stolen not only ourselves but the worship that is due to him. But Jesus mediates reconciliation between us and our God through his death and resurrection. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus' work of reconciling us in his letter to the Colossians, which, which I believe was accompanied by this letter to Philemon. He says, For in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, which means Jesus is God. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, before him, Jesus has wrought reconciliation for sinners through the cross. Paul put it this way to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, 
In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's what it would have required Philemon, not, not counting Onesimus' uh, trespasses against him. That's what God did for us, not counting our trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the mediator of our reconciliation. As Paul was for Onesimus, so Jesus is for us. God is the one who was offended as Philemon was in this story. God is the one whom we offended. God is the one from whom we had run away. And friend, we are the Onesimus of our own story. We are the slaves to sin and death. And by God's grace and for his glory, for many in this room, he has brought us to faith in Christ. So that through his death and resurrection, we who were slaves are now sons and daughters of God. And then Paul says, we've now been given both the ministry and the message of reconciliation. To take the gospel to those who are not reconciled to God. Of how they can be through Christ. Praise God that he has reconciled to himself so many in this room through Christ. But perhaps he has not reconciled all in this room to himself. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope for rescue from certain and deserved judgment because of your sin, your running away from him, your offense against him, then you do not have peace with God. And you do not have that sonship or the inheritance that comes with it. But you can. You can. If by faith you allow Jesus to be your peacemaker with God. He paid the price for your sins. He died the death that you deserve. And he rose again from the grave. He will be your mediator of reconciliation if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone to save you. So on his behalf, I appeal to you, be reconciled to God through Christ. Come to Christ in faith this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful and grateful to have this very small but potent word in the Scriptures that not only gives us a practical example of how to work for and be used by you for the purpose of reconciliation within the church, between brothers and sisters 
in Christ. But much more than that, Father, to give us this beautiful picture of reconciliation. Onesimus did not deserve reconciliation. And neither did we. So, Father, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have shown us in Christ and ushering us across the line of faith to trust in Jesus as our only hope, giving us new life in Christ and securing for us not only an eternal home, but forever reconciled with you. And in that vein, Father, we pray for those around us, perhaps those around us in this room, those around us in our home, those around us in our neighborhoods and workplaces who are not reconciled to you, who have no peace with you, and are still at enmity with you in their sin. And specifically for those in this room and within the hearing of my voice, I pray, Father, that they would feel the weight of that enmity. That they would feel, for a moment, perhaps, the hopelessness of their condition apart from Christ. And then in the next moment, that they would hear loud and clear the clarion call of the gospel that this is why God sent Jesus Christ. Because mankind could never make their way to you. And so Jesus has made a way through his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. Father, for that person, I pray that you would grant them the faith to trust in Jesus and that you would receive the gift of their life so that they would be transformed from an enemy into a son, from a slave into a bondservant now of Jesus Christ, a son, a true son, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Thank you for this truth, Lord. Help us to live in light of it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. By God's grace, uh, this morning we have had the privilege to read the Word. We've had the privilege to pray the Word, sing the Word, and, and hear the Word preached to us. And now we get the honor of seeing the Word Augustine called the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper visible words because we now through the Lord's Supper we get to see and smell and touch and even taste the word. And I think this is a very appropriate way for us to celebrate and respond to a passage of Scripture that speaks to us about God's work in reconciling us to himself. Because that's what the Lord's Supper is. It is a tangible way of seeing and experiencing again what Christ has done for us. The only way that we could be reconciled to a holy God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
that we both remember and proclaim and celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper together. So you'll take out the elements that you received on the way in. If you are celebrating the Lord's Supper with us and you didn't receive one, if you'll lift up your hand, we'll have one of our deacons that will make their way to you. There's a couple of folks that are in need of that. Since the Lord's Supper is, in its essence, a proclamation of our faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope as sinners to stand before a holy God, then this is a part of our service that's only for those who have so made that proclamation. If you've not yet come to the point in your life where you profess faith in Christ alone, not faith in your church membership, not faith in your um, acts on behalf of God, not faith in how much you read the Bible, not faith in anything that you do, but that your faith is in Christ alone and His finished work on the cross is your only hope. If you've not come to that place yet, then we would, we would actually caution you very sternly from taking the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11 where the Apostle Paul uh, gives a warning about taking the Lord's Supper without discerning the body. That means discerning that this is a profession of faith in Jesus' sacrifice as our only hope. So if you've not yet done that, then we would encourage you not to participate uh, and simply observe as those whom by God's grace and for his glory he has called to faith to trust in Christ alone. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 as he's teaching the Corinthian church about uh, how to apply this in the gathered worship service. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, taking this cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. On the night in which Jesus Christ took, uh, was arrested, and handed over to the authorities. He was gathered with his disciples in the upper room, as Paul said, and he took the bread, and he broke the bread. And when he broke the bread in half, he said, this is my body. It was a tangible way of them seeing that Jesus' body would be broken for sinners like us. And so when we take the bread, we're remembering what Jesus endured perhaps physically more than anything else, that he was stripped, that he was beaten, that he was whipped, that a crown of thorns was thrust upon his brow, that nails pierced through his hands and feet, and a spear was thrust through his side. He did this willingly, knowingly, 
setting aside his rights and privileges as king to rescue sinners like us. So if you'll remove the top layer and reveal the bread. Church, this is the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Take and eat in faith. Father, we thank you so much for your gift of Jesus. As we take the bread and take the juice now, we're not just remembering. We're also proclaiming that our only hope, not just for rescue from the penalty of sin, but our rescue from the power of sin in our daily lives is through an empty tomb and a risen Savior. And so we thank you for the price that was paid on Friday and the deposit you received on Sunday morning. If you'll reveal the next layer, take the next part off and reveal the juice. After supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood that is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. They understood the spilling of blood that was required in the Jewish sacrificial system for sins to be covered over, at least for God to be able to speak with Israel and meet with the high priest. Now this is a new, this is a new kind of sacrifice. This is a once-for-all kind of sacrifice. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Never again will the blood of bulls and goats and sheep be, need to be sacrificed because once my blood is spilled for the sins of my children, no other sacrifice is required. That's why he cried out in his last breath, it's finished, it's finished. Church, this is the blood of Christ, cup of salvation. Take and drink. Father, as we upend this little cup and we pour the juice into our mouth, we are reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ drank to the very dregs the cup of wrath that was reserved for us because of our sin. He drank that cup for us. And that is our only hope. That is our only hope, Lord, to be reconciled to you. Oh, Father, thank you for your plan to reconcile sinners like us back to you. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.